continuing with this uh, chapter on meditation and this, this uh, next section is called the development of insight on one occasion Lung Po taught about the development of insight in terms of the two jhana factors of vitaka and vichara he said that with the mind in the state of calm a thought might arise vitaka prompting appreciation of it, vichara, resulting in rapture, which would then propel the mind into a deeper state of lucid calm. On the passing away of that state, the appreciation could resume. And Lumpur is speaking. If you maintain awareness, we'll get a report from the scene. It's similar to there being a person in a house with six windows. You stand outside watching the windows. From outside, you see someone appearing at one window, and then someone else at another, and you assume that there's six people in the house. In fact, it's all just the one person moving from window to window. That one person is named three characteristics. Everything is unstable. The three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self are the object of vipassana. Penetrating them will cut off all doubts. So the image there of the house with six windows is the uh, six senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. So then the, um, the things appearing in those different windows is things that we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. And so rather than, uh, and then the image there, of it's, uh, it's all the, the same person appearing at those windows, that whatever it is that appears in, in sight, sound, smell, taste, touch and, and thought and feeling and so forth, yeah, they're all of the same quality. They're all, they're, every single experience is anicca, dukkha, anatta. So that's uh, the underlying uh, uh, commonality that what all experiences have in common. Hence, they're called the, the three characteristics uh, of existence. As the practice of contemplating whatever phenomena arose in the calm, lucid mind as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self-progressed, the meditator would experience a disjunction between the knowing and that which was known. Disjunction meaning a, a, a separating out or a, dis, a disconnecting. And Lumpur is speaking again. It's not that you have to force this disjunction. Through the abandonment, the putting down of attachment, the mind and its object become automatically disjoined. At this stage, Lumpur said that the distinction between the mind and its present object was like that between oil and water. The separation allowed for a constant examination of phenomena. Again, Lumpur is speaking. If you take your mind to this point, wherever you go, the mind will be analyzing. This is the enlightenment factor, quote-unquote, called investigation of Dhamma. It rolls along by itself. And you talk with yourself, you resolve and release the feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness that arise. Nothing can get close to the mind. It has its work to do. This happens naturally. It's not something that you can contrive. He said that it was at this stage that the Buddha's teachings on the foundations of mindfulness became clear. When the membrane connecting the knowing from the known has been cut, then the meditator saw, quote, 
the body in the body, feelings in feelings, states of mind in states of mind, and wholesome and unwholesome dhammas in wholesome and unwholesome dhammas. In other words, they were seen clearly for what they were, without superimposing upon them an independent, self-existent owner. Uh, as I was mentioning uh, yesterday, this was a, um, a key insight from the contact that uh, Lumpur Cha had with, with uh, Lumpur Man. It was only there in his monastery for about three days. And uh, if my memory serves me correctly, it was this particular point on the, the, uh, the third uh, evening talk. Uh, Lumpur Man gave, gave talks uh, every evening, and it was on, this, on the third evening he was there. He made this particular point about the... Um, the quality of awareness, uh, say, being uh, separated out or dis disjoined, as Ajahn Jayasara puts it, from uh, from its object, its present object, and that this uh, image of oil and water is one that that Lumpur Cha would uh, would use over and over again, particularly because of the way that um, uh, rather than doing something to make the oil and the water separate out from each other, it's like that they are sort of intrinsically joined and you have to somehow um, sort of distill them or do something special to, to, uh, to separate them out. He would use an image of a, of a bottle with oil and water in it together and if, if the bottle is shaken up then it seems like there's one liquid inside it. But uh, if you just put the bottle down then the oil and the water separate out on their own because they're their densities are different, they're immiscible, they can't be mixed. So the, the main uh, act of the practice, as, uh, as you would have it in that, using that image, is simply putting the bottle down or, or not shaking it. And so uh, by simply um, <coughs> say putting the, 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 the field of experience down, as in sort of not, not grasping it or identifying with it, then the, those two uh, separate out from each other quite naturally and and uh, uh, without any kind of force or anything particularly special or difficult um, and so that 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 sense of put, uh, putting things down just um, uh, learning to watch the mind know the mind know the field of experience as it is without uh, a sense of interference or, or ownership or me having to do something to make it this way or, or that way, that simply that um, putting things down, uh, and uh, you can represent that in various different ways, but I would say that sense of, of uh, not clinging, not identifying, not taking the, the objects of mind uh, or the experience, uh, uh, the, the, the knowing to be a, a person, or that the things that are known to be the possessions or or the, the, the actions that belong to a, an individual, that simply putting them down, then the awareness and the objects sort of separate out from each other. And uh, I, I was so struck by this image that many years ago at Chithurst, um, back in the early 80s, I used to have a bottle, a little bottle of, of, uh, with oil and water in it sitting up on my shrine, just to remind, uh, rem uh, remind me of that, uh, that image yeah, in uh, Lumpur Cha's teachings. Does that make sense? Any questions or reflections? Yes. If the water mixed with the milk, it makes them together, and then um, it doesn't work with milk and water. It's oil <laughs> and water. Yeah. <laughs> it's that every analogy is partial. 
it only applies so that uh, uh, for for milk and water you use that an image of things joining together easily like the buddha said as friendly and undisputing as milk with water looking upon each other with kindly eyes is a, an image for harmony in the sangha so water and milk they 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 mix very easily but oil and water they don't so it's just using the image of, of oil and water as a a um, a way of describing how the um, the the uh, say the, the quality of awareness is intrinsically yeah, in its essence is transcendent over the the objects uh, of experience that makes sense every analogy is is partial you can, there's no when you use something as a as a symbol or a way of describing things there's always ways you can find that it doesn't quite work yeah, but the point is, it's just a, a um, the the uh, the image is just um, giving it a representation. It's a sort of a, a good enough way of representing things. Okay, so the next section is called attainments, and uh, this was uh, what I was talking about the other day about uh, the vipassana upakilesa is uh, referred to here. At a certain stage in meditation practice, the, quote, defilements of insight, unquote, may arise. And there's a footnote there saying, Vipassana Upakilesa, a list of ten states, first appears in the Patisambhidamaga. It consists of illumination, knowledge, rapture, tranquility, bliss, resolution, exertion, assurance, equanimity, and decisiveness. Which all sounds like good stuff, doesn't it? So, so the this is where you have these very what would be positive experiences but they are um say um uh, effects of the mind of getting focused in particular ways and uh, but that um that focusing or the assumptions that are being made then, uh, or or the uh, the attitude towards that quality of focus uh, is causing a, a basic distortion and so that even though there are these very very positive attributes like illumination knowledge rapture tranquility bliss etc it all sounds like good stuff that that's one of the reasons why that these states are quite dangerous because they oh this is good i'm i'm totally blissful or i'm, I'm really alert or you know, things must be going well and so the, the mind goes further down that that direction it's rather like if you're uh, if you're driving somewhere, and you think, "Oh wow, the the, the motorway is really clear. This is great. Yeah. It's a really easy, really easy journey today." Oh, the M25 is usually much more clogged up with this, and you realise it's because it's not the M25. <laughs> ah, so you're driving very, uh, very mindfully along, enjoying the beautiful clear open road, and heading in totally the wrong direction. Aha! This is why the road is very clear because it's it's not uh, it's not the one I thought it was. So, to go into this section. At a certain stage in meditation practice, the defilements of insight may arise. Here, unenlightened meditators come to mistakenly believe that intensely positive mental states, such as illumination and bliss, are indications of enlightenment. And uh, Lumpur uh, describes it. You attach to the goodness that arises in your practice. You attach to the purity. You attach to the knowledge. This is called vipassanu. And another footnote there says uh, th this word vipassanu, 
is Lumpo's, uh, Lumpo Cha's own coinage, it's like a word he made up, intended for rhetorical purposes to form a pair with vipassana. So, so you, you think you're practicing vipassana, but actually it's vipassanu, as in vipassanu pakilesa. So he, he sort of made up the word to be a, a pair of, of one being the right way and one being the wrong way. And in a similar fashion, he, he made the, the words samut and vimut uh, as, as conventional reality and ultimate reality. Conventional truth and ultimate truth. You don't really find that pairing um, in the, the suttas, samuti and vimuti, as a, as a pair, but they work very neatly in Thai language, samut and vimut. And so samuti means conventional, uh, or like samuti sacha means conventional truth, like to say, to say today is Sunday is a conventional truth. <coughs> in, uh, in Australia it's already Monday. So you know, to say today is Sunday, it's like, well, it's a conventional truth dependent on the fact of being in this part of the planet and using English language. You know? In France, this would be dimanche. Is that right? Yeah, Sunday, dimanche. <laughs> Any French people here? Is that right? Dimanche for Sunday? I've got to go to France in April, so I have to crank up my French vocabulary again. So <coughs> that um, so Lumpur would use that as an easy way of speaking, samut and vimut, where vimuti means liberation. So it's close, but it would be it's sort of close enough to be able to sort of weave it into a, a, an expression that he that he would use. So anyway, Ajahn Jayasara then continues the commentary here. Through the practice of meditation, defilements can be so effectively suppressed that they may seem to have been completely eradicated. As a result, meditators can develop an unshakable self-confidence in their perceptions. If their teacher refuses to accept the validity of their assumed enlightenment, they interpret it as either a sad misjudgment on the teacher's part or else as jealousy. So if uh, Ajahn Damanando comes and declares his enlightenment to me, and, uh, and I say, uh, Ajahn, I think um, just just because of the fact that you are, are you know you've been awake for three days, and that um, you've been doing you know, twenty hours of walking meditation, um, you've taken that as a sign of your of your total enlightenment. I think it's actually a sign of derangement. <laughs> Ajahn Amro is just jealous because he's not accomplished like I am. And so that will be. It's often, excuse me for using a random example. So that uh, the, uh, uh, and this uh, Ajahn Jayasara kind of sums it up very uh, succinctly there, but that, that uh, um, uh, unfortunately that's not an uncommon kind of experience where people have these intense meditation effects and then they uh, attach to the, the perception. So also, as I mentioned, another word that's, that is used to refer to the same kind of area is sanya vipalasa. So sanya means perception, vipalasa means the wrong way of holding. So that the mind holding the perception in a, in an incorrect way. So he continues. The strong measures may be needed in such cases, and a short, sharp shock is usually the recommended cure. In the commentaries, there are stories of awakened monks disabusing others of their delusions by mentally projecting hologram-like moving images of elephants in rut or alluring women in front of them. Caught by surprise, the monk who had believed himself to, to have transcended lust 
and fear of death is suddenly made painfully aware that the defilements have only been driven underground and are still lying latent in his mind. Lumpur would tell the story of Lumpur Pao, who replied to a nun's declaration that she had become a stream enterer with a curt, uh, a bit better than a dog. Uh, in England, that might not be much of an insult. You know, people hold dogs in very high regard. And in, probably Many people, dogs are more worthy of respect than most humans in this country. I come from a family of dog breeders. So my father was a dog judge. So, <clears throat> so to say, a uh, bit better than a dog. In Thailand, that, uh, comparing a human being to a dog is considered extremely offensive. The shock and anger that arose in the Mechi when spoken to in this unexpected way immediately punctured her conceit. Lung Po once used the same method with a similar result when a Mechi at Wapapong mistakenly believed that she had attained a stage of enlightenment. He listened silently, silently to her claim and then, with his face a stern mask, said coldly, Liar. It was one of the subjects on which Lumpur could be fierce. Again, Lumpur Chan is speaking here. Don't ever allow yourself to get puffed up. Whatever you become, don't make anything of it. If you become a stream enterer, then leave it at that. If you become an arahant, then leave it at that. Live simply. Keep performing beneficial deeds. And wherever you are, you'll be able to live a normal life. There's no need to go boasting to anybody that you've attained this or become that. There's another story Ajahn Jayasara doesn't include here where um, uh, a monk uh, from a different monastery uh, came to Lumpur Cha thinking that he'd reached the stage of anagami, a non-returner, which is like one notch below arahantship. And um, uh, I wasn't there, but according to the story, then uh, he, uh, he came and he had a number of his disciples with him. They're all sort of very proud of their Ajahn. And he's coming along to the great master to get his stamp of approval and for Lumpur Chah saying, you know, well done, lad, well done. <clears throat> so um, he, he came along and paid his respects and, and made this declaration that he'd realized the, the, the stage of a non-returner. And then apparently Lumpur Chah, very similar to this, says something like, oh, uh, anagami, in my village, that's, uh, we use the word anagami to refer to a mangy dog. Like a dog with a skin disease, so that anagami means mangy dog in Bangkok, and so, <clears throat> and then this this monk um, got very upset and offended, and and again went stomping off, and um, and uh, so the Lumpur's comment was, "Oh, an angry anagami, that's unusual." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> that. Um, that kind of testing is of uh, of, uh, of somebody is is kind of um, uh, not just what people would do for others, but also what they would do for themselves. And and I heard uh, and earlier in the book, uh, Ajahn Jayasaro refers to this with, with Lumpur Cha that um, he when he had the uh, say the the realization that uh, or had understood that he'd reached a particular level of of uh, liberation that he tested himself out. He sort of said, "Okay, let's." <clears throat> so it seems like all the conditions are here that, that represent this particular stage having been reached. Okay, let's test it. And so he would, he would uh, challenge himself for for two or three years after he kind of put himself to the test to see if his mind would 
would uh, would wobble, or that whether he was deluding himself, or whether uh, this uh, was was genuine. And so, um, so in a way, going so completely against that readiness to make a claim or to to um, to boast, but rather um, the being cautious about not deluding himself or being being uh, say drawn in by these um, defilements uh, of insight to 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 be really certain. Yeah, okay, definitely everything seems to be uh, according to the you know those reliable measures, and so then. Uh, uh, he was, uh, uh, say, confident that okay, that's that level ha- uh, has been reached. It's also um, there's a in the northern Buddhist tradition there's a um, <coughs> a sutra that comes from China called the Shurangama Sutra, which is the main meditation teaching that you find in the um, Chan tradition, and uh, it's got uh, many different aspects to it, and uh, it was a uh, a sutra that. Uh, Master Hua from City of Ten Thousand Buddhas that he uh, placed a great deal of emphasis on, and his teacher Master Xu Yun, uh, uh, he lived uh, hundred and twenty. He was a monk for a hundred years. He lived to, to be the age of one hundred and twenty, um, and uh, at the end of his life, one of his disciples asked him if he ever had any regrets, and he said, "Well, he had written a commentary on the Shurangama Sutra, and that had got destroyed in the communist uh, takeover in." China, he'd lost that, and the, and and it got completely destroyed. He said that was, yeah, so I, I feel a regret. That was that would have been something that would, that would have been useful to to uh, bequeath to the world, but uh, it's gone. So <clears throat> that was his only regret after being a monk for a hundred years, so, which is um, a notable thing in itself. But in the Shurangama Sutra, the last it, it's a uh, has many different aspects to it. As part of the sutra, describes. Uh, a whole group of um, a whole sort of succession of different bodhisattvas that come to the Buddha, and each one describes their particular method of meditation. So it's it's like a kind of uh, meditation manual in many respects. So that they um, they come along and they might rep- they might describe a meditation on on using taste or smell, or they, they might use a meditation on endurance and so forth. And I think there's um, I think there's twenty eight. Uh, 25 or 28 bodhisattvas that, that come along and uh, do you know sister how many in the yeah. you don't know so I think it's, hmm? 28. 28 thank you very good so there's 28 bodhisattvas and each one comes along and describes their own particular method and then it's the the method of uh, Guan Yin bodhisattva is our meditation on hearing is the one that the Buddha says this is the the most effective method for enlightenment so the last section of the sutra is a kind of collection of the vipassana upakilesa, the defilements of insight. It's a combination of of um, all the different mistakes you can make in in in, uh, in many respects. So it's called the fifty skanda demon states. And so for each of the five khandas, there's ten different sort of meditation problems that people run into. And uh, from the very course of the sort of the rupa khanda. Um, section of the uh, the the first lot up to the the um the vinyana kanda group the last 10 uh, and the, so the last 10 are, are the kind of problems that you run into if you are indeed already an anagami it's the kind of problems that an anagami runs into and so uh they are a, a very helpful collection of describing how the mind can be deluded by these different states and different experiences of one kind or another and uh 
it, it's also it seems to be a blend of both the 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 sixteen the um, ten uh, vipassana bhakilesa the defilements of insight also in the Brahmajala Sutta, which is the first sutta in the long discourses, there's a, a, a collection of 62 kinds of wrong view, which also makes very interesting reading in its own right. So that's sutta number one in the Diga Nikaya. So there's 50 skanda demon states is a kind of combination of these many different kinds of wrong view and these different um, defilements of insight and meditation problems. So it's quite a, a, an interesting, sort of useful collection. To, to look at. But uh, one of the things that's, that's significant in that, that I find quite uh, helpful, is that over and over again with each of the 50 states, it says as, as a sort of the final line of each description is that you know, if the person knows that it's a state, then it's a good state. If they don't know it's a state, then they're bound to fall. So that if you um, have this kind of experience of, say, unrelenting energy or kind of all-encompassing knowledge or the mind is filled with, with light, if the, there's the, enough mindfulness, and again, as, as Lumpur Chao was uh, saying in some of the readings yesterday the day before, you know, if you know, oh, this is what the mind is doing, oh, the mind is, oh, it's, it's, for some reason it's, the mind is now filled with light, or there's this sense of understanding everything and everybody, oh, that's different, oh, look at that, I, I can read people really easily now, I can... Um, and I seem to not need to eat or sleep. Oh, that's unusual. <laughs> and so that the the mind is able to know. Oh, this is a state. This is a this is a, a particular pattern of experience that's happening. If the mind knows it's a state, it therefore knows it's there's a there's an impermanence there. There's a a not self quality to it, and it, it's just something that has arisen and can't be satisfying or um, liberating in and of itself so that it holds it in the correct context, it sees it in its true light. As soon as the mind buys into it and says, oh, I've really got somewhere, oh, oh wow, I'm, I've, I've, really, uh, I've really made it, I'm now, uh, I'm now totally enlightened, um, then um, you're bound to fall. <laughs> the, the fall comes from that, uh, that kind of wrong grasping of it. So it's and it's very very easy and, and Lumpur's advice here about don't ever allow yourself to get puffed up. Um, it, it can be that uh, people are very eager to, and ambitious, you know, in in good ways to. I mean, we work hard at our meditation to reach these stages of stream entry or being once return or non returner and so on, and so that the mind can be quite eager or hungry to arrive at those particular stages. You know, oh, wouldn't it be great if I... Uh, and that's natural enough. You know, it's just like wanting to pay off a debt or wanting to, to get over an illness or, or um, uh, to, to, to learn a particular skill. Wouldn't it be nice if when you can speak this language or you can um, carry out this particular task? And so that, that's a natural thing for us to do on, on, pract on a practical level. However, the mind can be over-eager to, to have those kind of, to reach those kind of states. And also, can, people can misunderstand what the teacher says. So that, for example, in the past, um, so the Lumpur Sumedha would, and I would also often teach um, the uh, meditation on the inner sound, the inner listening, listening to the, the nada sound. And so sometimes people would, uh, it has been sort of misinterpreted that, uh, that uh, if you can listen to the, uh, the, if you can hear the nada sound, that means that you're a stream enterer. 
Because the word sota, S-O-T-A, in Pali, means uh, the ear, sota vinyanang, ear consciousness. And it also means a stream, so that then it has happened that someone's, oh, a stream enterer is one who can listen to the, the inner sounds. Like you've entered the stream. The, the, uh, you've, the, the stream is entering consciousness, stream enterer, and it's sota, sotapana, it's the, yeah, that must be it. And that through the fact that the word for ear and the word for stream are, the, are written the same, S-O-T-A, they have, they've uh, understood, oh, yeah, it's, that, must, that must mean that if you can hear the, the inner sound, it means you're a stream enterer. That obviously, makes perfect sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it just happens to be the the uh, the the you know a, a word that is spelt the same, like the word minute for one sixtieth of an hour is the same, spelt the same as minute, meaning very small. They don't mean it's not the same word. It's a different word, <laughs> but they're spelt exactly the same. Like, or the word wind, for that air that is moving, is spelt exactly the same as the word wind, W-I-N-D. To wind is to, I'd uh, say, to um, put uh, some, roll some string around a, uh, a stick, so you, you're winding the string around the stick. But wind and wind, they're totally different words, but they're spelt exactly the same. So it has happened that people have said, oh, well, I must be a stream enterer because I can listen, I can hear the inner sound. Yeah, somehow, Lumpur Sumaita doesn't seem to spell it out quite that way, but I'm, I'm sure that's what he means. It's obvious. And so the mind makes a misinterpretation and then goes around thinking, I'm a stream enter, I can hear, I can hear the sound really easily, therefore it means I'm a stream enter. Hooray! And another interesting uh, incident was where, um, because, you know, as you can tell from this, Lumpur Char played down the, um, the, the, the whole aspect of attainment and um, and so uh, try to keep that in perspective for people who not really not really uh, uh, talk about it very much. So he would never say to someone, "Oh, you know, you're a stream enter, or you're an arahant," or, or he would make any kind of judgment. And sometimes he was asked to 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 say, "Oh, this person is saying they're an arahant. What uh, what do you say?" And he would would never be drawn on that. Uh, yeah, he, and when one of his disciples again it talks about it in this book people were, some people were very excited oh yeah, this, this monk is an arahant and no he's not yes he is no he's not <coughs> and um, and uh, Lumpur Shah's comment was if he is he is if he isn't he isn't what else is there to say about it and that was it end of discussion <laughs> which is uh, <coughs> which is might be frustrating for some people but um, the, he would shy away from making that kind of comment. Or people are, would ask him, yeah, are, you an, are you an Arahant Lumpur? And he'd say, why do you want to know? You know what, you, what you should ask instead is, why are you not an Arahant, whether, rather than what, whether I am one or not? Yeah. Do you ever ask yourself that? <laughs> or he'd make a comment like, it takes one to know one. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, um, the... He would shy away from making those kind of judgments or, or, or speak about that area at all. So many years ago, uh, in, in the in early days of Chithurst, this lay, layman who was uh, helping out there said, um, you know, well, in the middle of some kind of building project, he, he just sort of casually mentioned, oh, oh yeah, Ajahn Sumedha told me I'm a stream enterer. Really? He said, yeah, yeah, he told me. 
And I said, oh, it's a bit unlikely. He never says that kind of thing to anybody. And he just, not even, not to the monks or lay people or anyone. It's just not the way he talks. Says, no, no, he told me, he told me. I said, oh, I was just describing this, this meditation experience. And he says, yeah, I'm a, he says, yeah, you're a stream enterer. That's, you know, Sotapanna. I said, really? It doesn't sound very likely to me. Uh, I, I think he might have misunderstood. No, no, it was really clear. He said, I was, he said, he said that means you're a Sotapanna. Hmm, very, very strange. So I kind of filed it away in my hmm, on my hmm shelf. <laughs> okay, get to that one later. And uh, <clears throat> so I just thought, well, maybe there'll be an opportunity one day to, to uh, ask Lumpur about that because <clears throat> yeah, he, he would never say that sort of thing. And also, when, when uh, Lumpur Sumedha had asked uh, Lumpur Cha, when he was a young bhikkhu, said, he'd asked Lumpur Cha, uh, uh, am I a stream enter or not? And then Lumpur just said, if you're still in doubt, it means you're not. <laughs> <laughs> if doubt is there, that's kind of on the list of things that, that, that need to be got past. So, uh, anyway, so um, uh, a, num- a few years later, when uh, I wasn't sort of... Uh, Carrying it around, but just it was sort of there in the back of my memory, and um, the uh, a number of years later, and Lumpur Sumedha was mentioning, he was talking about this particular kind of mind state that can come from meditation, which is called sobana jitta, which means beautiful mind, and that he was talking about it uh, uh, in a dhamma talk, how when he was a novice in Nankai, that. Uh, he, his mind went into this very blissful state and everything he looked at was beautiful and he was in this this fairly f- sort of funky uh, little kuti and uh, it was a uh, not a very um, fancy place at all but he said everything about it was beautiful the the kind of the curve in the wooden planks that made up the walls were beautiful and this cracked plastic um, bowl as a water dish was was extraordinarily beautiful and the the sun coming through the the uh, the the doorway was extraordinarily beautiful. Everything was just uh, uh, radiantly beautiful. So, and he said, "This is called." When he asked the teacher about it, he said, "This is called sobanajitta." Uh, and I thought, "Ah, sobanajitta. Maybe that sounds that sounds a bit like sotapanna. Maybe that uh, that guy misheard it." And and so. Um, uh, so uh, anyway, when I had a chance to chat with Lumpur, I said, uh, uh, so, um, you know, I forget the, the conversation exactly, but uh, I said, oh, you know, so-and-so, uh, a number of years ago, he described this meditation state. He said, yeah, that's right. I, I said to him, that's Sobhanajitta. You know, it was on a, he was on a retreat, and, I, and, and what he was experiencing was Sobhanajitta. Ah. <laughs> So Lumpur had used the word quite accurately, Sobhanajitta, um, the beautiful mind, and the guy had misheard it, thinking Ajahn Sumedha just told me I'm a Sotapanna. He just heard the word incorrectly and was happily so, oh, I've been told I'm a Sotapanna, I'm a Sotapanna. And so that uh, that um, eagerness to claim some kind of uh, attainment, uh, almost invariably that's coming from self-view. That's number one on the list. That's the first fetter is self-view. Like, so if the mind is saying, I'm a Sotapanna, then that's the point to get really suspicious. <laughs> that in a way, that if self-view is in the picture, it means that the first fetter has not been dropped. If there's an I am who's the owner of something, then that's 
that re- that reveals that self-view is definitely or it seems very very strongly in play so in a sense you can't really say that a person becomes an arahat the, the mind can experience arahata can experience arahatship but to say there's a person who becomes or a person who is is a, a, a is a, a an incorrect way of speaking because the mind is not really a per- in its essence the mind is not a person personhood and the feeling of I and me and mine, personhood, comes from the delusions of self-view and, and conceit, if you can follow that. So that to, to say, oh, this person is an arahant, if the mind can register that as, well, that's just a convenient way of speaking, like today is Sunday. It's just a, a mode of expression. It's not a, an absolute truth. Then you can say, well, the mind realizes freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion, and that's described as arahat or arahatship. But to say this person has reached that level or has got that attainment, the mind is framing it in terms of uh, a, a uh, an individual uh, ent- an individual being who has got something, who is, who is um, the genuine uh, owner or experiencer of of some state. So it's it's make, the mind is making the person in that uh, in sort of believing in that formulation as a as a, an accurate representation. If the mind knows it as a conventional truth, it's like if you know it's a state, it's a good state. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's okay to say it's Sunday because it's not, it's not Wednesday. Or, you know, it's, it's good enough and we can call this February. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a convenient fiction. But if you take it to be an absolute truth, then it causes obstructions. The fall will be uh, forthcoming shortly after. Any questions, reflections on that? Uh, I have. Yes. You, like, uh, I, I'm wondering the relationship with um, this attainment and religious structure. Like, uh, I'm living in a religious form system right now, and I'm wondering why like, uh, this attainment should be always like related to this religious system, like Buddhism. In this kind of thing, like uh, there are some people, lay people, who get enlightened without like uh, certain systems of, like, to learn about teaching and to keep the rules and kind of thing. So, like I have some kind of very like a silly fantasy about like getting enlightenment without without having all these rules. <laughs> like, uh, if I can get enlightened. <laughs> Can I have arahanship and dinner, please? Uh, well, it's a good question. I mean, it's, you're by no means the first person to ask this. Um, so the the. Uh, one of the 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 the, the third fetter is sila um, paramasa, uh, getting beyond conventions, and so you know the the conventions that we live with, calling ourselves Theravada Buddhists or nun, a monk, anagarika, that these are conventions, these are adopted behaviors. You, you just shaving your head and putting on a, a a uniform does not liberate 
the mind. So the mind is the essential element. It's the mind that gets liberated, not the uniform or the hair cut. You know, the mind is what is liberated. But the the conventions that we live with, like shaving the head, wearing robes, keeping the precepts, going without supper, you know, these are all designed to put the the uh, uh, say uh, to create the most um, supportive environment possible for those insights to be uh, cultivated and clarified. So you're uh, in essence um, making it as simple as possible. You're sort of streamlining the effort, uh, doing away with as many obstacles as possible, right? choosing to live as simply as you can, as honorably as you can, as uh, as harmlessly as you can. Then that puts many obstacles, uh, many uh, say, it, it clears many of the obstacles out of the way. It it makes uh, it, uh, less excess baggage. Whereas if you have um, uh, possessions, property, romantic relationships, you have um, uh, a kind of web of emotional commitments, pets, uh, uh, responsibilities for uh, for the, in the workplace and such like. Those things are not intrinsically bad or, or wrong, but it's just more stuff to carry around. It's, it's a, and particularly with emotional uh, attachments, it's hard enough to develop insight into one set of five khandas. If you've got like three or four sets of five khandas, that's a lot more khandas to not attach to. So it's a very it's a very simple and pragmatic approach. So the, essentially, the Buddha's uh, uh, the way I read it is the Buddha's. Uh, insight into developing the, the sangha and the spiritual forms that he did is like well this is a really tough nut to crack so you might as well get as many get as many of the odds in your favor as you possibly can so um the sangha and the renunciate life you know the eight precepts the ten precepts and, uh, the uh, monk and nun precepts are, are established to to put as many of the odds in your in favor of living simply living harmlessly living honorably and um have as few uh, um, uh, emotional encumbrances, practical encumbrances as possible. Because it's tough enough already, so try to make it as easy as, we, as, as, as is possible. So that's how, how I see it. So that it's also, um, there's a very interesting dialogue between uh, Lumpur Cha and uh, the, the young Ajahn Sumedho many years ago. And it was, I think that the subject came up about about money, and uh, in terms of the vinaya, and uh, <clears throat> and so Lumpur Chah made the comment, said that you know, if uh, uh, so, we have these strict rules about not using money. He said, yeah, I could use money, and without any kind of attachment, I could, but I don't. So why don't? Why do you think I don't use money, Sumato? Uh, please tell me, Lumpur. <laughs> he said, because of you. Because uh, you say if I if I start using money, then all the other members of the sangha say, "Oh, it's all right for Lumpur, therefore it's all right for me." And so, whereas I might be able to do it without any kind of confusion or attachment, then uh, it's, it sets the example for everybody else. And so that uh, <coughs> I don't use money, so that it makes a, a, a clear standard for everybody else. So that the and that's why you know the Buddha was totally incapable of suffering. He's a fully enlightened Buddha. So he can't he can't create dukkha in his mind. Uh, 
So, but yet he lived as a as a penniless monk walking around Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, barefoot for forty five years, living on alms. Yeah, he didn't have to live that way. Uh, he could have just conjured up a very comfortable and luxurious lifestyle if he wanted to. But out of the out of compassion, then he lived in that very simple way and set this very beautiful and helpful standard, uh, and also set up the the structures whereby two and a half thousand years later it's still functioning, which is pretty amazing in terms of a practical approach. So that um, the uh, whether you eat the, you put food into the body in the morning or the evening, in and of itself, it, you know, is uh, is immaterial. It's uh, whether your robes are white or pink or brown or purple or multicolored. It you know, it makes uh, uh, ultimately it makes no difference. But on a practical level, in the in terms of uh, the the human condition and living together and wanting to um, live simply, then th those structures support the the development of wholesome qualities and. Uh, if any of any of us who've ever tried to live in a communal household, we have very sort of high standards of idealism. Like we're all going to share everything. You know, we 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 we'll we're all live together. We'll we'll take our turn. We'll all share everything together. Uh, probably a few of us have tried to live that way. And how quickly does it devolve into who took my eggs? You know, it's your turn to do the dishes. You know, it's supposed to, you're supposed to be cooking the supper tonight. And, yeah, you, you never, you never hoover the carpets, and it gets very personal and very, uh, very tense, very, very quickly. So that the structures that are established in the, the vineyard uh, are um, designed to support those qualities of unselfishness and sharing and, and li living in a respectful and responsible way, and. Uh, so that we we all have the same haircut, whether you've got lots of hair or little hair, it's it's the same for everybody. Uh, we you know, uh, we have the same kind of baggy clothing that sort of uh, all the, pretty much the same color, so distinguishing various different areas of the community, but all pretty simply. And um, the 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 sense of um, not having to not having to decide what you're going to wear. It's very, very pleasant. So, what shall I wear today? Brown, 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 or brown? <laughs> what shall I do? What shall I do with my hair? It's a, you know, it's a, a, a great relief just not to have to think about those kind of things. Even if you didn't really care that much, even so, it's, it's very, makes life simple. So the, the Buddha's approach to the, these, these sort of conventions is essentially practical. Someone was actually asking me today, this little kid came today, why do monks wear brown? And I said, well, it hides a lot of dirt. Yeah. <laughs> they said, what about the ones in white? I said, well, they've got to be more mindful. Yeah. They, have, they get afraid of ketchup. Yeah. Ketchup and beet, you know, tomato ketchup and beetroot are frightening for the, the ones in white. But when you wear brown, it, it, it hides a lot of, of grubbiness. So I was very grubby. Yeah, so I was always a kind of um, pig pen kind of a character. So they used to tease me when I was in Anagarika. They had to make me into a novice because my robes were going brown already. <laughs> so, uh, 
And I think, you know, the Brahmins had to work, they were wearing white, so they had to do a lot of laundry. Yeah, the, the summoners were, wore brown, kind of dust-colored brown, so they didn't have to get to the river and do their, do their washing quite so often. And get away with a few more stains and, and scratches and, and marks, and whereas that would really show up on the white robes of a Brahmin, so it's the kind of extra training for the, the uh, eight preset people. Okay, the next section is called Beyond the Monkey. One sign that the practice was on the right path was the feeling of sober sadness that arose through constant contemplation of the three characteristics, which evolves into nibida or disenchantment. And the Pochar speaks here. An illumination takes place and then disenchantment sets in. Disenchantment with this body and mind. Disenchantment with things that arise and pass away and are unstable. You feel it wherever you are. When the mind is disenchanted, its sole interest is in finding the way out of all those things. It sees the suffering inherent in the world, the suffering inherent in life. When the mind has entered this state, then wherever you sit, there's nothing but impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not-self. There's nowhere to take hold of anything anymore. If you sit at the foot of a tree, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. If you go to a mountain, you hear a discourse from the Buddha. You see all trees as just one tree. You see all creatures as of one species. You see that nothing deviates from this truth, that all things come into existence, become established, begin to change, and then cease. Lumpur made clear that the disenchantment that he was referring to was not an expression of aversion, for that would have been simply another expression of craving. This disenchantment was the feeling that arose through seeing how mistaken it had been to consider impermanent phenomena as self, or belonging to self. It was waking up from the enchantment of body and mind. And Lumpur speaks, this is not the monkey feeling disenchanted. It's feeling disenchanted with being a monkey. Hmm. I'll read that again. <laughs> this is not the monkey feeling disenchanted. It's feeling disenchanted with being a monkey. Lumpur maintained that Mainair, awareness of the present mental object as changeful, fluid, unreliable, of uncertain outcome, was the unerring guide right from the very beginning of meditation practice until its final conclusion. When mental objects were recognized as changeful, he said, it was like breaching the boat of conceit below the waterline. The sense, I am, listed to one side and sunk. So as a list is to lean over, so that uh, if you, the, when, when the, the quality of Everything is anicca, is minor, is uncertain. It's like it's knocking a hole in the side of a boat below the water. So then inevitably the water flows into the boat and the boat, uh, the boat um, lists over and sinks. <coughs> Lung Po taught that complete liberation of the mind was the result of creating a momentum where the tirelessly repeated inner contemplation of the three characteristics in a mind freed from the hindrances was complemented by a steady effort to be mindful and alert 
to the three characteristics in daily life. Eventually, the constant repetition and increased profundity of the contemplation reached a tipping point and bore fruit. Although Lumpur was reticent about talking in detail about the higher stages of practice, he did on occasion make some important observations. In one of his discourses, he described the case of the meditator who has, quote, a glimpse of Nibbana, unquote, but is unable to fully integrate his understanding and has to return to the work of wisdom until the mind is fully mature. And Lumpur speaks. It's like someone who's in the middle of stepping across a stream with one foot on the near bank and the other on the far side. They know for sure that there are two sides to the stream, <clears throat> but are unable to cross over it completely, and so they step back. The understanding that there exist two sides to the stream is similar to that of the Gotrabu Pugala, or the Gotrabu Chitta. And Gotrabu means change of lineage, i.e. between the unenlightened and the enlightened. So the change of lineage, so rather than looking at the source of what you are as being um, like for myself, Mr. and Mrs. Horner, um, uh, mother, and, uh, sort of mother and father as living beings, but rather the, the lineage is recognized as that of being the Dhamma itself. So that it's a letting go of the personal view or self-view. So Gotrabu, Gotra is your, your clan or your tribe, your, <coughs> your, your family, your lineage. It means that you know the way to go beyond the defilements, but are still unable to go there, and so you step back. Once you know for yourself that this state truly exists, this knowledge remains with you constantly, as you continue to practice meditation and develop your barami. You are both certain of the goal and the most direct way to reach it. Right view has been established. The meditator knows the right and the wrong way of practice, they steer between the extremes of pleasure and pain and gradually move down the path of equanimity, but still make mistakes. They know that treading on thorns is painful, but they still can't always avoid doing so. But through constantly laying aside the tendency to attach to all that is pleasant and unpleasant in the world of experience, insight deepens until finally they become, quote, a knower of the worlds, unquote. When the mind is completely seen through personality view, all doubts and attachments to precepts and practices disappear. And now the mind of the practitioner is, quote, in the world, but not of it. Humpur made a comparison with the natural separation of oil and paint in a bottle. Humpur speaks here. You're living in the world and following the conventions of the world, but without attaching to them. When you have to go somewhere, you say you're going. When you're coming, you say you're coming. Whatever you are doing, you use the conventions and language of the world. But it's like the two liquids in the bottle. They're in the same bottle, but don't mix together. You live in the world, but at the same time, you remain separate from it. The mind doesn't create things around sense contact. Once contact has occurred, you automatically let go. The mind discards the experience. This means that if you're attracted to something, you experience the attraction in the mind, but don't attach or hold fast to it. If you have a reaction of aversion, there is simply the experience of aversion arising in the mind, and nothing more. There isn't any sense of self arising that attaches and gives meaning and importance to the aversion. 
In other words, the mind knows how to let go. It knows how to set things aside. Why is it able to let go and put things down? Because the presence of insight means you can clearly see the harmful results that come from attaching to all those mental states. When you see forms, the mind remains undisturbed. When you hear sounds, it remains undisturbed. The mind neither takes a position for or against any sense objects experienced. This is the same for all sense contact, whether it be through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body or mind. Whatever thoughts arise in the mind can't disturb you. You are able to let go. You may perceive something as desirable, but you don't attach to that perception or give it any special importance. It simply becomes a condition of mind to be observed without attachment. This is what the Buddha described as experiencing sense object as just that much. The sense bases are still functioning and experiencing sense objects, but without the process of attachment and stimulating movements to and fro in the mind. Having gained such clear and penetrating insight means it's sustained at all times. Whether you are sitting in meditation, with your eyes closed, or even if you are doing something with your eyes open, whatever the situation that you find yourself in, be it in formal meditation or not, the clarity of insight remains. When you have unwavering mindfulness of the mind within the mind, you don't forget yourself, whether standing, walking, sitting or lying down. The awareness within makes it impossible to lose mindfulness. It's a state of awareness that prevents you from forgetting yourself. Mindfulness has become so strong that it is self-sustaining to the point where it becomes the natural state of the mind. These are the results of training and cultivating the mind, and it's here where you go beyond doubt. Lumpur said that realizing that the constant arising and passing away of all phenomena is in accordance with the causes and conditions is a fixed invariable truth is to find the only kind of permanence that exists. Can you follow that? Lumpur said that realizing that the, that the constant arising and passing away of all phenomena in accordance with causes and conditions is a fixed invariable truth, is to find the only kind of permanence that exists. So the only thing that's permanent is the law of impermanence. Realizing this truth of an unchanging changefulness is, he said, quote, the end of the path that needs to be followed, unquote. In terms of the Four Noble Truths, the framework for all of Lumpur's practice and teaching, by bringing the eight factors of the Noble Path to maturity, suffering is comprehended. And with the factors sustaining suffering abandoned, suffering ceases. As Lumpur said, it is as if an arrow has been pulled out of your heart. So <clears throat> this is a very um, uh, sort of significant teaching and it's sort of spelling out a, a principle that's been talked of earlier before where to, to know that the, the mind that can know oh, this is a pleasant feeling or this is a painful feeling that it's clearly aware. Uh, if you remember the, uh, a couple of days ago the Lumpur was talking about the two kinds of, of pleasure that there's the... Um, the, the kind of blissfulness of a, a beautiful or inspiring, lovely sense object, and there's the the quieter but more um, uh, say 
profound uh, bliss of the mind resting in the quality of of awareness itself. Um, I probably can't find it now, but uh, if you remember that, that's a very, so very, very uh, important distinction. So, if the, as long as the mind knows that such an such is an experience as a pattern of feeling, whether it's pleasant feeling or painful feeling or neutral, that the uh, the mind is not investing in that pattern of experience, but it uh, continually uh, abides in the quality of, of awareness, knowing this is this is liking, this is disliking, this is comfort, this is discomfort, and um, that that uh, the mind that is able to rest in that uh, and be that quality of knowing that has its own uh, uh, say uh, peacefulness and its own beauty, its own its own blissfulness, but it's a, a, a if you like a, a quieter and a more profound quality of of, uh, of peace or, or blissfulness. So that the uh, the habit of our conditioning is for the mind to invest in this is good, that's bad, and it goes into the things that we hear or smell or see or taste or touch and is sort of, uh, framing what is good and bad by the, the quality of the sense object but uh, in this is pointing to the fact the establishment of mindfulness is so that uh, the more and more that 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 is developed as you say whether standing walking sitting or lying down the awareness within makes it impossible to lose mindfulness uh, it's a state of awareness that prevents you from forgetting yourself mindfulness becomes so strong that it's self-sustaining so that then that uh, becomes the the immediate recognition of oh this is liking this is disliking this is a, a, a pleasant taste this is an this is a unpleasant taste so the, the mind essentially doesn't leave that the the ground of of awareness and get lost in the in its moods or or the sense objects and that um, in this uh, this way as he said it's like as, as if an arrow is pulled out of uh, out of your heart because the mind is not investing in whether an experience is pleasant or painful beautiful or ugly uh, it's not that's not where it's taking refuge and rather the refuge is in that quality of, of awareness itself so that's the end of that chapter, meditation chapter. So any final questions, reflections? Uh, it's difficult to realize, we need to look a lot uh, how uh, painful it is to crave or to try to escape from something. So we not uh, we hold until we think it could be pleasurable. But when we, for example, in meditation, see this state of craving and mm -hmm. to see how painful it is, this is the cause to not invest yourself to these cravings and try to get something, but you invest in, uh, more in peacefulness because it's more stable and not so uh, dependent on objects. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so the, there's a, another place where, where Lumpur makes a comment um, until you know the pain of attachment you won't let go so it's just when you're, you're, if you're carrying around six pieces of, of luggage you know, you've got, you're coming from from the, from the Ural mountains and you've got six suitcases oh, this, is such a, this is such a headache I've got to carry all this stuff around why I'm going to a monastery why do I need six suitcases 
and your hands, your, your arms are tired, you're sweaty and hot and uncomfortable and, and everyone's looking at you like, why she got so much luggage? You know, it's, it's a, a burden. And so that uh, it's the mind that recognizes, why am I carrying all this stuff around? Why am I doing this to myself? That you don't have to, to have the thought, this is, this is stupid or I shouldn't do this. It's like once you realize, I'm carrying a lot of extra stuff around, why do I bother? And then the, the letting go happens on its own. So in a, in a way, it's not like me letting go, but that the, uh, once that sense of burden or stress is really acknowledged, then the letting go happens on its own. It's like a, it, it's a, like a natural intuitive response. It's not like, I'm doing this because I should. You know, the, the, the teacher says I should, or the... Or the the, the, the Buddha in his instructions says I should be this way, I shouldn't be that way it's, it comes from a much more natural intuitive place like, uh, that is um, just, let's, let's go of things because it's of the stressful and unnecessary quality of it just kind of falls away on its own and that but it's also it's, uh, we, we can do that easily with painful experiences but sometimes when we're, we're chasing after something that's pleasant, you know, you're addicted to something that's, that's a, a pleasant experience, and that you, the mind goes after that, I want more of this, this is really good, this is, this is delicious, this is great, this is wonderful. And so that I want more of it, I want more of it. And uh, so the mind looks at it as a pleasant experience, I want more of this pleasant experience. You can say, well it's harmful, but I want more of it. And so it's a bit harder to see, but if when the mind is chasing after or trying to get more of a, like a greed experience, trying to get more of something that it's calling pleasant, if you bring the attention to that, that feeling of, of wanting, the feeling of, yeah, of greed or, or of uh, chasing after something, it's quite surprising how, how unpleasant it is. That the, the, the the feeling of of wanting or of trying to get more trying to 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 possess or to to have extra uh, that it can be quite a surprise oh this is really quite unpleasant <laughs> but we don't notice that because the the mind keeps getting uh they confused by the the sort of pleasant hit that it gets from getting that sense object of the the food or the sound or the sight or the the the, the thought it, it gets deluded by that sort of positive uh, reinforcement, that thing that says, "Oh, this is good. This is a the the pigeon gets its its uh, its reward. It gets uh, gets its its food to eat. So it's oh, this is good. This is good. This is good." And it keeps chasing it. So <clears throat> if we uh, so it's a bit more challenging to do, but to to bring the attention to uh, to the the, f the felt sense of wanting when the mind is chasing after a pleasant experience uh, just to stop to the degree that uh, is possible and, and to look, okay, how does this feel? What, what's the sensation of this in the body? The physical sensation that's here when the mind is is chasing and you go, oh, this is really uncomfortable, I can't breathe. You know, <laughs> like, well, I've got this stiffness across my shoulders. My, this is awful, this is horrible. But we don't. We we, we uh, are missing that because of the the kind of being distracted by the pleasant 
quality. If it's just aversion and you're hating something or you're afraid of something, then it's much more obvious. The, the signs of discomfort are a bit more easy to read. But uh, it's it can be quite um, uh, surprising how unpleasant enjoyment is. <laughs> that uh, trying to trying to have fun or trying to enjoy things or trying to to get more of what you like, I mean, it kind of ruins the, it ruins the the, the game. <laughs> if you look at it, uh, you think, oh, this is this is really not very pleasant at all. The other side of that, which is kind of interesting. Um, Particularly with relationship to fear, is that that we, when we experience fear or anxiety, I, I'm worried that this that this is going to happen. I, I don't want that to happen. It'll be really awful if that happens. Oh, I don't want that to happen to me. Or that. So the mind creates this this dread, this fear, and uh, it's like a, a, a negative perception. Um, and we can spend an awful lot of time and energy trying to get away from that feeling, get to a place where I won't feel afraid, or I won't be worried, or I'll feel secure, I'll feel a sense of reassurance and comfort. <clears throat> but uh, in a, a similar way, if you bring the attention to the, the physical sensations of fear or worry, uh, to, so in a way it's surprising that it, it's not that bad. We spend a lot of energy trying to get away from that. But uh, it's a it's uncomfortable, but it's not it's not terrible. It's not destructive. You're not going to die from it. But we relate to to the habits of fear like it's the most unbearable thing. It's it to be a, a, a disaster if we have to experience that. We, we're desperate to get away from that, and uh, it's uh, uh, for myself. I, I was quite. When I first started really looking at that directly, I, I was quite surprised. Like, oh, I spend so much energy following fearful impulses, trying to get away from these uh, uh, threatening situations or, or getting away from that feeling of fear. And when you when you feel the sensations of it, it's uncomfortable, but it's not that bad. So that or when it's something that's desirable. Uh, you're noticing the unpleasant quality of it that's, that's there, that you're missing altogether. But when it's something like fear or aversion, then it's still uncomfortable, but it's not as bad as the mind makes it. You see what I mean? So that then in both in both those cases, you can see, okay, if the mind follows these states, that uh, <clears throat> then it will be aware, oh, either chasing after what is liked or running away from what is, is, is threatening. Mm. Both of those are... Are states of discomfort or tension, and we don't really have to to follow those in such a compulsive way. The mind can simply know those as they are, and then uh, what I what I found for for myself is they there would be this this intuition or this feeling of why am I doing this to myself? Or why why is this such a big deal? Or why do I want to why do I want to have more of this? And then through that clear seeing, that that wise reflection, then that the 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 mind drops that thing that it was afraid of or, or wanting it, it makes it fall away much more easily and naturally okay so another hour has gone by more than an hour has gone by already so we'll leave it there for today <clears throat>